The ACURE Symposium is the world's only scientific conference dedicated to acute cardiac unloading. Join us for the 8th Annual ACURE Symposium August 24th in Amsterdam. Register today at acure.org, A-C-U-R-E dot org. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for May 2023. This is the place where I tell you about some of the biggest stories in cardiology covered by TCTMD.com in the past month. And May, as you well know, is the busiest meeting month of the year. I haven't quite gotten around to doing my last load of laundry after returning from back-to-back EuroPCR and ESC heart failure meetings for TCTMD. And I haven't even started on the laundry list of other tasks that pile up during meeting travel. I and most of the TCTMD team spent these last four weeks dashing between cardiology conferences while trying to cover a handful of other meetings remotely. It is a real privilege to be back at these things in person. We're getting to meet so many of you in person, as well as hearing and seeing firsthand what is really making waves in your world always pays dividends in terms of staying abreast of this field. I cannot tell you about all of that in the next 20 minutes or so that we have here together. What I opted to do this month was snag a few minutes with Davide Capodano at EuroPCR and Sunil Rao, the now past president of Sky, to hear from both of them what they took home from both of those meetings. We'll start with Davide of the University of Catania, Italy, who is also the editor-in-chief of Euro Intervention, as well as a board member for PCR. Before we start, let me warn you, EuroPCR was busy this year, as busy as I can ever remember it being, and finding a quiet corner to record this interview with Davide was no mean task. The particularly loud rumbling that you hear is, I think, a catering cart going by en route to the faculty lounge, delivering some tiny and beautiful canapes composed of unknowable ingredients, the hungry vegetarian's dilemma. Anyhow, tune your earbuds to the right frequency for a little background noise, and let's jump in. All right, well, we are here at EuroPCR, where there is so much going on. I think the number of hotlines number over 100, but you have taken a closer look at some of these. Can you tell us what you think your top trials are from EuroPCR 2023? Okay, thank you, Shelley. Yes, at EuroPCR, we say late-breaking science, or hotlines, because, of course, trial has a specific uh, design, but uh, this is because we really want to encourage also uh, great observational studies. However, I must say that at EuroPCR this year we have more uh, trials uh, in the canonical uh, sense than ever. So there are many trials, uh, smaller ones, uh, um, primary endpoint reported, uh, and also trial updates. So essentially, there are many, that's true, this year. And uh, of course, uh, it's easy to pick the ones that you like the most that are closer to your practice. And of course, everyone has a preference. Sure. I think uh, one of the highlights this year that could be really uh, and probably will impact on my practice in a way is uh, the KISS trial that was presented uh, um, essentially by a group of experts in bifurcations. You know that uh, uh, our guidelines in Europe now say that uh, it's class one of a recommendation to do the provisional approach. Okay. Essentially, you put one stent in the main branch and you try to optimize, especially in the proximal part, and then you have to 
take care of the side branch in some way. Mm-hmm. Some doctors prefer to do the kissing balloon inflation, other right. doctors prefer to do the pot side pot technique, but then in the end it's not clear. And it's not even clear if you have to take care of the side branch or just uh, leave it uh, untreated. Mm-hmm. So these investigators uh, investigated this hypothesis. So you do the main branch stenting and then you stop versus you continue to work and uh, optimize the side branch. And uh, I must say, surprisingly, they met the primary goal of non-inferiority. The outcome was uh, a myocardial injury or infarction. We can speak forever on uh, how sure. much this is impactful or <laughs> Separate not. Separate podcast. Yes, but I prefer not to have it, let's say like this. And they found non-inferiority and not surprised, they found that this uh, saved time, contrast, uh, fluoro, etc. So it simplifies the procedure a lot. And for us as interventionists, it's really a paradigm change if we want to apply it because uh, okay, you stand the main vessel and then it's done. Yeah. Versus uh, other maybe 20 minutes of work, etc. And you do not pay a penalty in terms of safety. That's right. very important. And I would say, having been at EuroPCR for years and years now, there has always been this sense of trying to find the best two-stent technique. So the idea that you don't need to fuss with that second approach, whatever it's going to be, that does seem newsworthy, for sure. What, what other ones? I'd say that uh, there are other information that comes from these uh, trial updates uh, of uh, uh, studies that have been presented years ago. I mean, for example, EBC2 has been presented in 2016, and now we have the five-year outcomes. I think it's very important to continue to collect these outcomes, because, of course, when you compare professional stenting versus culotte, yes, you're interested in the early outcomes and the midterm outcomes, but then the, the long run is what will decide yeah. which one is the best. And at five years in this study, essentially, they continue to be uh, similar, which is interesting, especially because one is simpler, the other one is more complex. So simplicity, uh, again, uh, trumps uh, all in this uh, case. I mean, uh, of course, our uh, colleagues in Asia would disagree because they are uh, the inventors uh, of the decay crush approach, yeah. which is very successful. But in Europe, most of the bifurcation lesions can be done uh, according to these studies uh, with a provisional approach. And the other one that I think is relevant to this discussion is the ABC Main study, yeah. three-year outcomes presented at EuroPCR. And uh, here we start to see some difference over time for the provisional that showed less uh, target lesion revascularization. So that's okay. very, very interesting. Okay. Those were the bifurcation studies. What about other interesting things out there? Interesting to you at least. Well, um, I think in the coronary space uh, there was another study which uh, was interesting, maybe two studies, one with a new device and another one with a new drug-coated balloon. Uh, you know that uh, there is a lot of interest now in these uh, technologies uh, that are kind of less is more approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course uh, the uh, so-called bioadapter is a new concept because um, in a in a field that is a little bit static in terms of uh, innovation after the virus of scaffolds, you know? Yeah. Uh, they appeared and then they disappeared from the market because uh, there were some events, obviously, because of the first generation technology. Uh, waiting for the second generation technology, um, these uh, uh, investigators came up with a device which is not a stent, is not a scaffold, it's a bioadapter, they say. So essentially, there are metallic elements, but the connectors between these metallic elements are uh, biodegradable. Yeah. So in the end, when they disappear, the stent preserves the scaffolding function, but uh, uh, the vessel become again pulsatile. Yeah. So that's interesting because uh, it could be it could be uh, the best of both worlds. 
And now, finally, we see some randomized data, a small study of 400 patients, more or less. They compare versus uh, best-in-class DES. Uh, they met the non-inferiority goal, so they are doing the homework in order to convince the doctors that uh, this is okay. And interestingly, they had uh, IBUS data to show that uh, the concept of pulsatility actually is there. So um, I, I would like to see this replicated in larger uh, um, use of this uh, uh, device, maybe also in registers, etc. But it's exciting because it's a new thing. And for the drug-coated balloon, the novelty is that we are used to the discussion of, okay, should we use uh, stent or DCB? And now in the DCB world, should we use paclitaxel uh, elutin balloons or uh, sirolimus elutin balloon? And now we have a third player, which is biolimus. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's interesting because in this discussion, you have uh, a third uh, player in, uh, in this study, which is called Reform. This first generation uh, biolimus elutin balloon didn't meet their inferiority goal, but yeah. they have already the second generation, so they will try again. It means that in this field of DCB, a lot of things are happening. Yeah, there's still more to discover. I uh, paid attention to BioAdapter myself because we did have all those stories about the um, scaffolds, the bioresorbable scaffolds, a couple of years ago and are waiting for that to pan out, having not done so. But um, we actually had to ask Dr. Sato in the press conference, what is this thing? Because it's hard to get your mind around the way it detaches and still provides support to the vessel, but isn't providing it along the length of the vessel so much as it is in terms of propping it open and, as you say, leaving that pulsatility. So, yeah, three very interesting things. I want to let you go. It's very busy here, but I'd love to know what you think about being back at EuroPCR. I know you were here last Last year, but my personal sense is it seems busier and it seems even more crowded than ever. Is that just me? I have this feeling, of course. It's uh, a congress in uh, good health. Uh, you can see, of course, uh, it's difficult even to walk in some corridors uh, and, uh, of course, the usual suspects, bifurcations, STEMI, etc. These are very successful uh, sessions, but in the end, what works really is uh, the buy and for concept of EuroPCR, which is, uh, may sound like a cliche, but here it's really true uh, that the sessions are designed by the doctors, for the doctors, with precise scripting. There is a lot of preparation, and in the end, it's very uh, refreshing and nice to see that people appreciate this effort. Yeah. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy day to talk to me about this today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Journey now with me to the other interventional meeting taking place on the other side of the Atlantic. TCTMD's Laura McEwen weathered the sharp contrasts of the outdoor desert and indoor AC temperatures to bring you news from the Sky meeting this year. To wet your whistle, here is a bit of a recap with Sunil Rao. He is Director of Interventional Cardiology at NYU Langone, giving me his highlights from the Sky meeting. So thank you for joining me, Sunil. I wasn't at Sky myself, but I'd love to hear a bit about it. Uh, tell me what I missed out on. Yeah, thanks, Shelley. Thanks for having me on. I mean, it was really a fantastic meeting. It was good to be back in person. You know, we highlighted a lot of things. I mean, we highlighted all the accomplishments that Sky has done over the past year for the interventional community and for the fellows in training, that was a big highlight of the meeting. Uh, you know, we always have original research being presented at the meeting, and this year in particular, we were really thrilled to have our four early career research grant recipients um, present their research at a dedicated session. You know, for the first time in Sky's history, we're providing research funding, <clears throat> which is really, really challenging to get for. Uh, at least American early career interventional cardiologists. So that was a it was really a nice thing to be able to uh, to get these young investigators started with their careers and have them present their uh, their data. So I think you know in terms of the accomplishments the Sky has had over the past year, 
some of the big ones were that we implemented a match program for interventional cardiology fellowships. Now, this is unique to the United States, but uh, most fellowship programs, or at least residencies, for example, have a match program. And this, I think, makes the entire system more fair. It's not completely fair, but more fair for both app, uh, programs and applicants. In the past, what's happened with interventional cardiology fellowship applicants is that, you know, maybe they'll have five programs that they want to interview for. They'll go to the first program, and sometimes what the program will do is after they're done interviewing, they'll tell the applicant, "You've got 20. We're offering you a position. You've got 24 hours to accept. Otherwise, we're moving on." And, and the problem with that for the applicant is that they haven't even looked at the other four programs yet. Yeah, L. Maxwell did a really nice feature story on this because in some of the stories that we heard from applicants that were just having to accept the first offer that came because they were so worried about losing another. Um, really powerful. So yeah, I'm glad you guys celebrated. I mean, did you have any sort of session over it or or how did you really honor that? Not, not really. I just mentioned it in my presidential address because, um, you know, it was a lot of work and I really have to give credit to our the task force that we put together that was led by Doug Drachman and Don Abbott. Both of them actually received what we call the Mason Soans Award for, you know, service to the society for helping to lead this effort. Um, and, you know, Sky had tried before about 10 years ago to try and get this passed. It didn't go through because you have to get at least 75% of the programs representing 75% of the open slots to sign on. And so we just, I mean, they just worked the phones constantly and finally got it passed through. Um, so that was a big, um, obviously I talked a little bit about the early career research grant program that we launched. That was another really, um, I think we were thrilled to do that. From the DEI perspective, you know, we formed the DEI committee specifically to focus on DEI issues. They've been invaluable really in not just helping us design our sessions to make sure that there's adequate representation, but they also review every document that Sky is asked to endorse or be a partner on from other societies. And they wow. have really helped us understand the implications of specific recommendations or, or uh, publications on underserved communities, under people who work on underserved communities. So, uh, you know, for example, let's, this is just a theoretical, but let's say there's a guideline statement that comes out that says that in order to do X procedure, you have to have, you know, level X certification to do it. Now, and maybe there's no data behind it, it's an expert consensus. Well, there are people working in underserved communities providing high quality TAVR care, uh, for example, who may not have that certification. Now, are we gonna tell them that they can't do it anymore? So these kinds of things are really, really important. And I think our DEI committee has been invaluable in helping us with that. And specific to that, one thing that we launched this year was what we called the Ready to Launch program. We're gonna do this every year in the community where the meeting is located, where we invite female and underrepresented minority medical students to attend Sky Annual Scientific Sessions to get a sense for what interventional cardiology is about and how it's a great career and then how they shouldn't feel excluded from it in order to try and make sure that our profession reflects the patients that we're treating. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I've seen other similar sort of things tried at other meetings, but it is interventional cardiology that I hear time and again is the one that's that really is um, slower to change, or perhaps not slower to change, but at least the numbers have a long way to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Any particular um, clinical trials or late-breaking abstracts, that type of thing that you want to mention? Yeah, I want to mention a, a few. The first is acceleration which was an investigator-initiated study presented by Raj Swaminathan from the Durham VA Medical Center in Duke. This is really kind of an interesting study. You know, there's a lot of interest, obviously, in coronary physiology and assessment of lesion severity using physiological measures. 
One thing that's been noticed, and Nils Johnson published a paper on this a few years ago, is that when you give intercoronary contrast, you actually get transient hyperemia. And maybe that can be a substitute for using, you know, adenosine, or maybe your lab doesn't actually have some of the non-hyperemic indices like IFR or RFR or something, you just haven't purchased it. Um, so he had shown that you can actually use contrast. Now, in that particular study that he did, his measurements and his uh, cutoff were independent of the volume and rate of a delivery of contrast. So the acceleration trial group tried to standardize the contrast delivery using the assist automatic injector. Um, and it's a really fascinating study because it compared uh, this contrast FFR using a standardized protocol to FFR and showed that it had good diagnostic accuracy. So that's really kind of interesting. And I, ultimately, I don't, you know, it'd be interesting to see if the company that supported the study, which is assist, goes to the FDA for some kind of indication. I just don't know that. But it does, I think, add to our armamentarium of um, physiological assessment that can be done very quickly and rapidly. The other um, two studies that I want to highlight um, were presented at the Early Career Research Grant Session. The first was presented by Chetan Huded from uh, Mid-America Heart Institute, looking at the National Readmissions Database at the uptake of intracoronary imaging. This is a little bit of a hard nut to crack in the U.S., surprisingly. <laughs> so you would think that the uh, CAF-PCI registry would capture what the rate of intracoronary imaging is, but it turns out that CAF-PCI's data collection is entirely uh, built on the context of appropriate use criteria. So they only count intracoronary imaging if it's done before the first device is deployed and if the minimal luminal area is recorded. And outside of that, it's not actually captured. So anything you get in CAT-PCI is an underestimate. Now, again, National Readmissions Database is a claims-based database, so there's some limitations to that. But Chet and Huta did a really, really nice job showing that the uptake of intracoronary imaging is increasing in the U.S., but is still in the very, very low double digits, like 15%. Um, and so there's a long way to go, and there's a tremendous amount of variability across hospitals, where there are some hospitals that do 0% imaging for their PCIs. So a lot of work to be done uh, with that respect to that. And the last study I want to highlight is, is Alex Fanaroff from Penn showed a very nice analysis um, looking at amputations and the availability of medical care for underserved communities that have a higher rate of amputations. And I think the conclusion, which I was really, I was struck by this and I actually took a picture of this slide because I think it's a really important message, which is that an amputation is a failure of the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really powerful message and I think really is a wake-up call. In fact, we, I think we're, we're starting to discuss at the professional society level what we can do to impact this. Um, there is legislation that Sky has been supporting to try and increase screening for PAD in underserved communities. Uh, this has been led by our government uh, relations committee. So we're, we, we actually met with Senator Mark Kelly at Sky to okay. try and garner his support for that particular bill. Yeah, Laura McEwen was the journalist from TCTMD that was at Sky, and she's done some really nice stories looking at this. It seems like there's a growing momentum to draw attention to the problem. But as you say, an, uh, an amputation is a signal that something is, is not going right. The processes of care are not proceeding as they should in, in your neck of the woods. So I'm glad there was that focus at Sky as well. 
I uh, want to finish maybe by just asking you what the flavor of the meeting was. I mean, we talked before I hit record here that there's a lot of excitement to be back at meetings, but were people in the sessions or were they all uh, taking selfies in the hallways or were they managing to do both? Yeah, you know, there was a tremendous amount of energy around the meeting. And I suspect that's uh, just like ACC, there's a lot of uh, energy. I, I, you know, so I suspect PCR was the same way. Um, all the sessions at Sky were packed. I mean, many of the sessions, particularly around renal denervation, intracoronary imaging, shock, um, PAD, the adult congenital sessions, they were all standing room only. So people were really, I think, hungry for um, being in the sessions, learning. And, you know, meetings like Sky that are not these massive, massive meetings are great because you can really uh, interact with the presenters. And I think people really miss that. You know, you're able to go up and ask questions. Uh, in a setting that's not intimidating or overwhelming, and you can, you know, walk right up to these people who are really prominent and ask them questions. Uh, even, I mean, we get patient-related questions, you know, uh, from from people who are out there in practice. So uh, that's the real. That's what struck me about this meeting was that I think before the pandemic, maybe people were getting, uh, you know, a little. It was sort of becoming routine to go to some of these meetings, but now I think there's a tremendous amount of energy, and, and just seeing the rooms full was really fulfilling. I totally agree. I felt that too. I have to say, because I was at EuroPCR while you were at Sky, I hate that these meetings are at exactly the same time. Do you know, is there plans to change that? I don't know who should be doing the changing, but any chance well, these might not be concurrent? Sky has uh, has decided to make the change. So oh. starting next year, we have moved the dates of our meeting. We will not overlap with PCR anymore. So hopefully people can enjoy both the Sky meeting and the PCR meeting. Or at least our news coverage will be a little less hectic, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> it's the end of your presidency at Sky. I'm, I'm sure people are sorry to see you go, although George Dangus is a familiar face to me, of course. So I look forward to seeing what he does with it. But anything you're particularly proud of or that you think you've left your mark on? Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I, I think I'm particularly proud of the Sky staff and the executive committee and the board of trustees. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, we got a lot done. And I think this year has been one of the most productive for Sky. I think the things from this year that will leave a legacy are the um, is the, the match. I mean, that's really going to affect sure. our future training. And, and I've gotten a lot of unsolicited um, you know, gratitude from people for implementing the match. The second thing that I, I hope and, and uh, think will continue, which is also a legacy, is the early career research grant funding, mm-hmm. um, you know, just to help people launch their academic career. So those two initiatives I'm particularly proud of. And again, it it wouldn't have happened without the Sky staff and the support of the Executive Committee and the Board of Trustees. Okay, well, thank you very much again. And um, I look forward to seeing you in person one of these days soon. Sounds great, Shelley. Safe travels back. Yeah, take care, Sunil. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is all I have for you for the Heart Sounds podcast this month, but I promise you there is much, much more on TCTMD.com, and I am very grateful to my hardworking team who really was turning out the news from all of this month's meetings. As I mentioned at the outset, we had these reporters stretching to as many meetings as we could this month, either on site or doing their best to cover the news from afar. That started with the AATS meeting at the beginning of May, then EuroPCR and Sky, followed by the ESC Heart Failure Association meeting, the European Atherosclerosis Society Congress, the European Stroke Organization Congress, and the Heart Rhythm Society meeting. 
Find all of the top news from all of those meetings on the conference tab at tctmd.com. Somehow in the midst of all of that, Laura McEwen and Todd Neal also managed some longer forum articles that I'll highlight here briefly as well. Laura took a look at the skyrocketing popularity of the GLP-1 agonists for weight loss in the United States especially, and what this means for cardiologists who are trying to help their patients get a handle on what is fast becoming the world's most pervasive risk factor. It has been a year since abortion access protection in the United States was overturned there by a Supreme Court decision. Todd Neal did a great story on what the implications of that might be for cardiologists treating patients whose heart disease makes pregnancy a risky or lethal proposition. This month, Todd checked back in with some of the physicians he spoke with last year to find out if their fears have come to pass. You can find both of those long reads on our homepage in the feature blocks or by navigating to features via the news tab. Thanks to all of you who reached out during this busy meeting season to give us feedback or say hello. If there was something important we should have covered, please let us know. We may still have plans to dip back into stories we didn't quite squeeze into this past month. I am always open to hearing from the Heart Sounds community. You can find my email on my bio at tctmd.com or message me on Twitter. I am at ShellyWood2. Thanks for tuning in to Heart Sounds. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne and Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. 